This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 265, The Battle of Borneo. Resistance comes in many forms. Thus far, we have seen the Empire of Japan's Operation No. 1 manifest itself in numerous places. The surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the landing of Japanese troops in northern Malaya at Kota Baru, in southern Thailand at Singora Beach, while other invading forces crossed over from French Indochina into eastern Thailand. The bombing of Singapore, the seizure of American and British vessels in Shanghai, the bombing of MacArthur's various air bases in the Philippines from Formosa, the invasion and occupation of Guam and Wake Island, though the latter would hold out longer and the desperate struggle that was the lost battle of Hong Kong. Not that's where the list ends. Midway Island, or rather the Midway Atoll, is a part of the chain of volcanic islands that goes from Hawaii north to the Aleutian Islands, located 5,200 kilometers or 3,200 miles west of San Francisco, and 4,100 kilometers or 2,500 miles east of Tokyo, it is roughly equal distant between North America and Asia. Further, it is 2,111 kilometers or 1,312 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor, which meant it would roughly be in the path of the Japanese fleet that had just struck at Pearl when they went back west. As Admiral Yamamoto had wanted to extend his six-months-to-a-year buffer of controlling the Western Pacific as far east as he could, 
He wanted the line of that demarcation there, near Midway, to give the Empire as much warning as possible when the inevitable American fleet came west. So, after the raid on Pearl, two destroyers were paired off to hit the American station at Midway. The atoll, really two islets, Sand Island and Eastern Island, and a circular coral ring, was claimed for the United States by Captain N.C. Middlebrooks in 1856, but formally taken in in 1867 under the Guano Islands Act of 1856. In 1903, the Commercial Pacific Cable Company had men on the island, setting up a Trans-Pacific Telegraph Cable. That same year, the U.S. Navy put up a radio station guarded by 21 Marines, as Japanese squatters were also there. President Theodore Roosevelt didn't want anyone claiming ownership via squatters' rights. In 1935, Midway was added to the Pan-American Airlines San Francisco to China route. By 1940, with U.S.-Japanese tensions increasing, there were soon airstrips, artillery units, and the channel on Midway was widened to make room for the naval air station and submarine base. By then, ships could come near or planes could fly over only with the permission of the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Marines built up the atoll's defenses while civilian contractors built the structures needed. Ironically, as Midway was seen as being equal to Hawaii as a shield for the U.S. western coastline, the large guns used by the Marines there were antiquated. They had 5-inch or 127mm guns from 1916 and 3-inch or 76mm guns from 1921. Still, it was the collective might of the United States that was expected to protect the island, much more than the gun emplacements. As it was not the intent of the Japanese to take Midway, it was deemed enough to only wreck the facilities there, again, buying the Empire time to consolidate Southwest Asia. The two destroyers, Yushio and Sazanami, under the command of Captain Oishi, came at the atoll that same morning as Pearl Harbor was hit. At 9.31 a.m., the destroyers opened fire, targeting the Americans' communications building and power plant. Strangely, because this could not have been planned, the shells that hit the power station had first bounced off the nearby laundromat. Commanding Battery H, 1st Lieutenant George H. Cannon, was hit with shrapnel in the pelvis and immediately began to bleed out. Yet he saw that the communications were down and assumed that this was a prelude to an invasion. So instead of allowing the medics to work on him, which meant he would be taken out of action, he refused until the signals were restored and the others around him were treated. By the time this was all done, fortunately, the enemy did not land troops. In fact, their shelling only lasted 54 minutes. Cannon had bled to death. For this, he would be the first Marine to receive the Medal of Honor in World War II. But by the time the Japanese sailed away, the PBY Catalina hangar had been hit, the hospital had burned down, and the island 
was littered with craters. Three other soldiers had also died during the attack, with more wounded. Not that the Japanese got off lightly. One of the destroyers took damage as it came within range of the Marines' guns. At that moment, the other destroyer laid down smoke, and they both withdrew. The Americans would receive reinforcements from Hawaii, but the Japanese would not be back until February of 42, again satisfying themselves with another bombardment from a submarine. Of course, Midway would become an important location for a much more consequential battle four months later. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 250 miles due east of Singapore is the western edge of the island of Borneo. The upper half of the island is in between Malaya and the southern half of the Philippines, and 500 miles of southeast of what was French, but in 1941, Japanese-controlled. Indochina. In 1941, there were estimated to be just under 3 million people on Borneo, but only about 12 settlements big enough to be called a city. Because of the thick jungle, there were few roads and only one rail line. So, communication was mostly by waterways or narrow slit paths through the dense jungle. After tumultuous years, Borneo had settled down, more or less, and was controlled by the Dutch in the south and the British in the north. Both began trading with the locals on the island back in the 17th century. In 1812, the Sultan in southern Borneo ceded his northern forts to the English East India Company. This was after the Dutch had tried to take the territory there, and the Sultan figured let the two Europeans fight it out. However, as the island held headhunters and the waters around it were full of pirates, the local chieftains saw an opportunity in the Europeans' superior firepower. By 1815, the Dutch were back on the southern part of the island, in fact, leaving a representative there. Yet the British were about to find themselves connected to the island in a rather unusual way. The Sultanate of Brunei is a small independent nation near the northeast corner of Borneo. But between 1485 and 1528, the Sultan there controlled directly or indirectly most of the island, 
But then the Sultanate's power began to wane. During that decline, the Sultan at the time was having his own troubles in 1842, i.e. a rebellion. But he was assisted by an English gentleman, former soldier and adventurer, James Brooke, who had his own ship. To reward him, the Sultan gave Brooke the area of Sarawak, which makes up most of the northern coast of Borneo, say three-fourths of it starting from the northwest corner. In all honesty, the Sultan was losing control of it anyway. James Brooke established the Raj of Sarawak after paying a fee to the Sultanate of Brunei, of course. Thus began the Brooke dynasty, with James as the first white Raja. Not too many years later, Brooke also obtained the island of Labaun, located just off the coast of what would be British North Borneo, the most northern corner of the island. Brooke did not waste time in going after headhunters and pirates around his lands. The islanders who made a living from trade were appreciative. With a British gentleman ruling to the west of Brunei and the North Borneo Chartered Company ruling North Borneo to the east of Brunei, it wasn't long before the Sultan there found himself losing even more territory to the Europeans. The Dutch to the south were already consolidating what they had in the south, collectively called Kalimantan. So, in 1888, the Sultan Hashim Julilu Alan signed a treaty of protection with the British. He would not lose any more territory, and his kingdom was now a British protectorate. By extension, Sarawak and North Borneo were given the same status. They were not colonies, just protectorates. Really, London wasn't all that interested in the area as oil had not yet been discovered. That would not happen until 1899, but larger reserves were found 11 years later. Now Borneo was on the map and would later get the attention of the Japanese when they were creating Operation Number 1. When the Netherlands were invaded in 1940, Free Dutch forces, though mostly the Royal Netherlands Navy, and about 85,000 men of the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army, which had a small air force, were spread throughout Dutch East Indies and would come under the command of Abdicom, the American, British, Dutch, Australian command, for however long that lasted. So when the Japanese forces came to Borneo, they found an island of locals who were generally happy with life and oblivious to much of the world. By 1941, some of those locals were Japanese immigrants who either owned local businesses or were part of a major zaibatsu, a conglomerate of companies. Obviously, some of them were spies for Tokyo, but most of those just collected information and laid low. For now. But in 1940, more detailed notes were being sent to the Japanese home islands, specifically about the two major oil operations, one on the northern coast and one on the east coast, controlled by the Dutch. More to the point, suitable landing places for an invasion force were being scouted as well. But the Europeans, civil and military, their high-ranking representatives, and the Australians could read a map as well. 
so they all came together at the Singapore Conference in October of 1940. As there was already a war raging in Europe, the attendees voted along pragmatic lines. The British and their allies determined that it made little sense to defend these strategic places on Borneo if the sea lanes around it were not defended by the British Royal Navy, which they weren't and were not going to be for the foreseeable future. Hence, the only option left was a denial scheme in where all the oil installations within Borneo would be destroyed, thus negating the very reason why the Japanese would be coming. Still, a gesture was needed from London to the people of Borneo. So the 2nd Battalion of the 15th Punjab Regiment of 1,050 men under the command of Major, later Lieutenant Colonel Charles M. Lane, with their one six-inch battery and demolition squad, would be on hand if and when the Japanese came. Their job, to carry out the destruction of the oil facilities. With the Indians, local forces like the Sarawak Rangers had in total 2,565 men. Collectively, this force was called SARFOR, for Sarawak Forces. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The general officer commanding Malaya, Lieutenant General Arthur E. Percival, toured Kunching, the capital of Sarawak, himself in November of 1941. He could see that a real defense was impossible. Still, it was best to make the Japanese work for it. And besides, time would be needed to make all the equipment for oil gathering inoperable. So, in the end, the new defensive plan would be Plan B. All available troops and supplies would be focused on or near the airstrip at Kuchin. As for the officers of the White Raj of Sarawak, it was deemed in the best brook tradition that they would stay at their posts and face together with the people whatever the Japanese would dish out. On December 13, 1941, the convoy carrying the Kawaguchi Detachment left Kamran Bay, French Vietnam. Its destination was northwest Borneo, near Kuchin. On board was the 35th Infantry Brigade of the 124th Infantry Regiment, commanded by Major General Kiyotake Kawaguchi, hence the force was named after him. For support, the Japanese Infantry Brigade had the 2nd Yokosuka Naval Landing Force on board as well. Though no resistance was expected at sea, the convoy was protected by cruisers and destroyers. As resistance was not expected on land either, well, anything serious, the Japanese invasion plan was simple. Landings would first be made at Miri in northern Sarawak, just west of the Brunei border, and at Seria, in Brunei proper, to capture the oil fields and airfields in those areas. 
Then, as some Japanese troops remained behind there to get the Miri oil fields operational again, the rest would move on to take the Kuchin airpace further down on the coast. Yet because of the Pearl Harbor raid days prior, it was decided to put the denial plan into effect right then. The oil fields were disabled, the landing grounds made, hopefully, unusable. By December 15th, the invasion force was anchored off Tanjong Baram, or Baram Point, just off the coast of Brunei. But the Japanese did not touch the ground of Borneo that day, as the wind had picked up and the seas were choppy, making the transfer of troops from ship to landing barge dangerous. In fact, lives would be lost during this process. Still, before the sun rose on December 16th, the Japanese started coming ashore. As the 35th Infantry Brigade and the 2nd Special Naval Landing Force came ashore, there was little to no resistance, as that was not a part of the plan, as perhaps the island's new owners would treat their captives humanely. Thus the oil fields of Syria, at Brunei, and at Miri were taken. Still, back on the 12th, those installations had been wrecked, so the Japanese had some work ahead of them before the precious resource could be made viable to help in the war effort. In Miri, 50 members of the local police gathered and waited for the first Japanese troops to appear. When they did, the town officially surrendered. Yet the Japanese were already in an ugly mood as they had lost 40 comrades, drowned, trying to transfer to the landing barges. Before the Japanese had arrived, many of the oil industry personnel and Upper Brook civil servants and their families had already departed. As for many of the white or European inhabitants that could not get away, they considered leaving the coastline and heading for the interior. But there awaited the unknowns of the jungle. So many stayed put and became prisoners of the occupiers. Some, however, made the treacherous journey and fewer still were able to take ship and reach Australia. As for the one plan that had the Commonwealth and local units offering some resistance, at least enough to buy time for the complete destruction of the oil facilities, that was to take place around Kachin. But no, it would not be the great holdout that many had hoped for. Still, Sarfor was to deny the Japanese the vital airstrip near Kachin as long as they could, because if that fell, then the invaders had an airbase that would allow them to reach Singapore even more quickly than on the first day of bombing, back on December 8th. Further, just to the southwest of Kuchin, across the border, an even more impressive Dutch airstrip had been set up. But this one, as far as the Dutch knew, was still a secret. It, too, had to be denied to the Japanese with their long-range fighters and bombers. If not, the territories around Borneo, in all directions, might soon feel the wrath of the Japanese Empire. The self-proclaimed liberators of Asia. 
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So on the next episode, I'll take a moment and thank all the new members and those that have donated. And yes, if you are so inclined, you can do both of those. And you can find all the details on worldwar2podcast.net. Anyway, just let me take a moment of your time and share with you one of my favorite podcasts, Jordan Harbor's Twilight Histories, where well-researched history meets great storytelling and a time machine. The great what-ifs of history. The Black Scourge ravaged Europe, and the great cities were destroyed. Survivors flooded north where Viking longboats ferried them to the New World. As the trail of refugees grew, so too did the ships, and soon massive multi-decked Viking galleys trolled the wine-dark seas, building medieval cities along every coast. I'm Jordan Harbour. Come join me at the Twilight Histories podcast, where you will experience exotic worlds like this one, worlds that never existed in our timeline. An Aztec empire built by Spanish steel, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, an Egypt that never fell. Listen with the lights off and allow the images to take you away. Listen to the Twilight Histories podcast.